The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and really appreciative, really for the sake of our community, really appreciative in this wintry winter we've been in that you folks have really stayed with the commitment. Now, I know some people who aren't here tonight might have, you know, travel plans or family obligations, and that's always okay when you sign up for Buddhist studies classes to not feel like you have to be here every Monday, but the commitment we make to each other, it really helps the work we do, helps to build community energy that really supports the work we do, the practice we do, is this commitment that when we can come, we do come to Buddhist studies, so it's not a drop-in program. Of course, if you're sick or have obligations that are really not something appropriate to try to get out of, don't feel guilty about having to miss. But don't stay home because you don't want to come. Better not to sign up if, if you want to kind of hold it in that light way. And so that's just to say I really appreciate the group that has been able to stick with it and as some of you who've been doing these Buddhist studies classes for a while know, you know, we're really seeing this as not a one-time class on dependent origination and then we get it, but, you know, we're just planting seeds with these courses, this six-year curriculum that several of you have done a number of times. We might rotate through the six year curriculum, these different maps that the Buddha used in teaching about the mind, what you could call Buddhist psychology, right? which is a, a mapping of our subjective experience. What is, what is that, that looking at one's subjective experience of the heart and mind? right? And we might cycle through it many, many times, each time getting a little clearer sense of what it is to have a mind. That's really what we're doing. It's the not seeing the mind, not seeing the causes of stress, causes of suffering right here in the heart, in the mind, that is the actual cause for suffering. And the causes for suffering here, like being self-centered or greedy or resentful right here, that's what leads the world all the injustice, that's what leads the world to be the way that it is. So it's good at the end of an eight-week class to remind ourselves that it doesn't mean we don't engage the world, try to make the world a better place, but I think it's really important to see this work, the study, the daily sitting time, coming together in community like we do on Monday nights as a radical intervention kind of being moved by compassion around the suffering we see in our own hearts, in our families, and and the world. It's not a retreating. I mean, in some ways, it's a retreating, but that's an intervention, that retreating. And if it isn't, if it actually isn't a cause, as you stick with it, explore it, if it actually isn't a cause for the alleviation of suffering, why are you doing it? <laughs> you know, it's probably more 
enjoyable things to do if this isn't a cause for release but is a cause for suffering. Right? So it's really our job to see, can this be a cause for release here in my heart, around me, in, our, in my world, or am I contributing to suffering? And especially with dependent co-arising, the teachings we've been using. So I'll read the Upanisha Sutta. This is the discourse on supporting conditions. Right, the, One of the places where the Buddha talks about how it is, like it seems so apparent that there's a person suffering. Like from my subjective experience, point of view, in moments, I'm assuming this aligns with your subjective experience, it seems like I'm a suffering human being, right? In other moments, it seems like I have been relieved of my suffering. So the two maps we've looked at, you know, related maps of dependent co-arising, how the, there is this natural cycling process that has that creates the appearance of a person who is suffering, right? So that's what dependent co-arising is. It's the Buddha's articulation of a feedback system, a natural process with a feedback mechanism that gives the appearance to a mind that isn't paying close attention to there being somebody who's suffering. And it's that misunderstanding of that natural process, like really believing that, yeah, I am suffering, and not having any, like an arrogant certainty about that. So then I don't have to look anymore because I know I'm suffering. Because how do I know? Because it hurts. But that lack of curiosity, that lack of investigation is what keeps the cycle, endless cycles going. And the Buddha makes it kind of, he talks about it in a really, you know, archetypal way. Like there's no way to imagine even the beginning of the cycling of suffering, right? Mostly to keep us from speculating, like how the hell did I get into this predicament, you know? And instead, get to know this as a natural process. That's the most important turning because we've been that being, right, that has recognized I'm suffering, right? That's not a big insight to to kind of have enough space in your human life to go, life is really hard, right? I mean, not everyone sees that, but it's not an unusual insight to kind of have enough space to go, this is really hard being a human being. Does it have to be this hard, right? But the thing is we keep, we approach, like even if we have real sincerity, we're missing the pointing out instruction. So we, let me look at what's going on to see if there's a way not to be a suffering being. But we always do that investigation with something unquestioned that the cycling is personal. So the Buddha's, you know, the map, the the sort of most important thing about the map is it's sort of saying, hey, you who takes 
the cycling of suffer, suffering personally, use this map, practice seeing your subjective experience with this map. And so the first thing the, the Buddha says is, yeah, there is this sort of conditional process. There are these past causes that lead to these present effects, like you having a mind and body, the sensitivity of the mind and body, contact, right? This is all present moment effects from the past causes. You know, the past causes are ignorance and unfinished business. Being born as this moment, being a sensitive being, having sense contact, this is the karma, we would say, the fruit, karmic fruit, of the previous moment of the mind with unfit, the ignorant mind, the misunderstanding mind. That's what we mean by ignorance. The mind isn't seeing or understanding clearly. It's taking what's impermanent to be permanent, what's not self to be self, what isn't actually beautiful to be beautiful. Things are neither beautiful nor ugly. They're just what they are, right? Beauty and ugliness is a construction. We're taking something to be satisfactory that's ultimately not really satisfying. So these are the misperceptions of ignorance. So there's ignorance, there's unfinished business, and we end up in this moment sensitive with these dispositions. So when we have contact, that moment of contact reverberates, you could say, or brings to the surface of our heart dispositions, tendencies to grasp, let's say. And then the interesting thing with the present um, effects, right, coming out of the past causes or these present effects that I'm sensitive and I'm having contact, then it's just a question in that moment, this moment, because this is the present moment right here. There are the effects from the past causes, but before present uh, causes are set in motion, new thing, new seeds are being planted, it really depends on the present effect of being sensitive with contact, how the mind, the heart, relates to it with wisdom or without clarity, you know, and with its habits of misunderstanding or misperceiving, which is basically taking it personally. I mean, it's a little bit more complex than that, but that's an easy way to remember it. Wrong view, misunderstanding, misperceiving means the mind is seen through this lens of self-centeredness, interpreting whatever sense contact, sense experience is arising with this unquestioned frame of me or mine, self, selfing, versus it's a natural process. And that's where this teaching comes in, right? It, it's like a prompt or a, a way to activate a new frame. Let me look at past causes, present effects, being sensitive, having sense contact. Now I can hold that. Well, yeah, it's just, and if, I follow the dispositions, then I'll be getting involved, the mind will be getting involved in planting seeds because it will be 
craving and grasping and becoming. I think it was Ajahn Tanisaro, maybe in one of the articles in our resources, maybe some of you read it, but he talks about that becoming as like uh, in that moment of dreaming. You know, you've fallen asleep, and you might, you know, if there's some lucidity or just in hindsight um, remembering a dream, it's like, excuse me, there's an initial image that arises in the mind. So you're falling, you have fallen or about, or in the process of falling asleep. And if you really um, intend or resolve to stay mindful as you're falling asleep, you'll see this transition a lot better. Because you'll notice that as you're falling asleep, what happens is, the thinking mind puts an image or a thought fragment. It, it constructs something that's interesting enough and gets the attention. And then when, because the mind's paying attention to whatever object that arose, then the attention is taken away from the continuity of mindfulness, you could say, so the mind, the attention, the wisdom misses the moment of that transition from conscious wakefulness to sleep. It kind of, like, somehow, you know, in the process, natural process, it's not personal, it figured out, you know, because natural processes have their own intelligent, intelligence, but it's just not centered anywhere. It's built into the process itself decided that it's best not to be there, to not be aware, to not be clearly aware of that, because it, it would be a little disconcerting. But it's, it's an example, uh, Ajahn Tanisaro, this Western Buddhist monk, whose some of his articles are in our study resources, you know, he's making the point that it's a really good moment to understand becoming, because there's that image, and then as the mind enters sleep, then who we are, what we are, it's like taking rebirth. That image is the becoming. It's sort of the thing that's left over for whenever the mind was doing, whatever was juicy, whatever had some momentum, you know, emotionally, mentally as thought. You know, it gets placed there, and the mind gets transfixed, and then that's the birth. The birth is the continuation of the mind doing riffs on that mental image or that thought or that subject, right? And what do we do in a dream? We build a world. We have a life, right? That's taking birth. And that's that, you could say, that fourth uh, quadrant in the circle of dependent arising. So we have the um, past causes, second Quadrant would be present effects, having a sensitive mind and body, unending sense contact. We have present causes, like when we misinterpret the present effects, being sensitive, then I personally act based on my contact, based on my sense experience. I crave, I grasp, I do something with the craving, that's grasping. And then I become, right? So that grasping leads to that sort of conviction, that image, that idea, and I get born into that. That's the next moment, future effects, 
suffering being, right? Because I have leftover business. And on and on, cycling on and on like that. So in the, this discourse on supporting conditions, it goes like this. Dwelling at Savati, that's a town at the time of the Buddha, practitioners, the ending of the effluence is for one who knows and sees, I tell you, not for one who does not know, does not see. So effluence is a translation of the word asawa. Some of you might know that word. It's a pretty important word, sometimes called outflows, like how the ongoingness of the mind, the unsettledness, the mind that can't rest. How So in the Buddha being very technical, very precise. He talks about what those outflows are, right? The desiring for sense experience, sensuality, always wanting another experience. The desire for becoming, you know, imagining wanting something in the future. And ignorance, it's an outflow, like that, how not understanding or not uh, or misperceiving how there that is an outflow right like when i'm misperceiving when i'm taking things personally it keeps the whole system unsettled it keeps the disturbance going so a moment of ignorance is an outflow it, it sort of keeps suffering keeps tension and constriction in motion, right? Practitioners, the ending of the effluence, so evidently this is what we're all interested in, in, right? Some intuition about wanting to put down the load, some intuition that somehow I've been dragging around a heavy weight in my heart for almost ever, and some intuition that it can be put down that there's a weight that can be put down, right? Does that describe us in some fashion? And then, uh, so, practitioners, there is an ending of this for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and see. For one who knows and sees what? Is there an ending of this, let's call it a dead weight, this ongoingness of the effluence of the, the mind being uneasy about sense experience, about ideas of becoming somebody and just the uh, unsettled dynamic of misperceiving. So this is what we need to see. Such is form, such is its origination, such is its disappearance. Form is just the five physical senses, sights and sounds and touches and tastes and smells. Such is it, so smell, or maybe more obviously now a sound such as it's arising, it's passing away. What does he say? Such as, it, uh, such as its origination, such as its disappearance, right? This is what we were doing in the sit with the sense contact, right? We're really noticing how it arises and disappears. And then he goes, so first he talks about the body as the five physical senses, and then he goes through four aspects of the mind, such as feeling. It's arising, it's disappearance. Perception, it's arising, it's disappearance. 
mental formations. That's all those dispositions and intentions and motivations, all the stuff that gets stirred up because of sense contact, all that mental activity that arises or gets in motion because of sense experience. That's mental formations, right? Such as any of that, whatever of that, such as its arising and its disappearance, right? Because that's a sense contact too. It's all sense contact. And sense contact always has the same nature. It shows up and then it goes away. Have you ever seen sense experience, sense contact do anything but that? Otherwise, we'd have an amazing traffic jam with a lot of sense contact that decided to stay. Never happens. It's always going away and then there's more and then it goes away. And that process of coming and going is essential. The Buddha is saying right here, like it's the not seeing how the activity of the body and the activity of the mind arises and ceases. It's the not seeing that that is the cause of being walking around with a heavy backpack forever. And that, you know, one of the things for people like us who have been studying Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings, is we feel like, well, yeah, I know that already, Mark. You know, I've heard that that things come and go. But it, see, it's not about intellectually having read that, studied that. Okay, I got that. I know the answer to the question. Do phenomena come and go or do phenomena come and stay? But we know the answer. They come and go. You know, experiences come and go. But our wisdom, or lack of it, in our actual subjective experience, moment to moment, we, we act as if whatever is arising is significant because we think its presence is more substantial than it actually is. So if, we, if something upsetting happened to us today, you might be able to bring yourself back there, you know, remember that time or whatever, a week ago, some insult or some disturbance, you broke something that you like, to deal with snow, <laughs> ice, or whatever. And, uh, and then it's like I said some embarrassing things this weekend, you know. I mean, nothing terrible, but just that there's a wave of humiliation and pain, you know. And, and with that is the interpretation that I'm stupid or I'm bad, you know. So there's both the sort of initial you know, feeling of embarrassment, and then the idea. But both of those contacts, it seemed like, you know, the interpretation that the humiliation, the pain of humiliation is going to be there. It's going to be substantially a problem for me, the unpleasantness of the humiliation, right? And then the idea that I'm stupid or that I'm not very good seems like that's somehow is defining me in a permanent way, and yet it takes a lot of work for this mind to keep remembering that I'm bad. You know? And so if there's enough wisdom, then that goes away. That's what happened. But in that initial moment when the pain of humiliation and the thought, like the self-defining thought, I'm bad or I'm stupid, is there, in that brief second, part of when ignorance is there is the idea that, yeah, that's really me, has been me, will be me, like in stone. 
But, it, but it's not true because like then in another moment, your partner might smile at you like she or he or they actually have undying love or something, you know, or your cat will sit in your lap or something like that. And it, it, like, it doesn't align with the absolute truth of being no good that you had a few seconds before. Right? And then you'll notice that, where did that go? Oh, it arose and ceased. Now the Buddha's going to go on. So he's saying like, uh, the ending of the effluence is for one who knows in this way, sees in this way. So we're just doing what we did in the guided meditation. There's sense contact, body or mind. And whatever the most obvious, we don't have to catch each moment of sense contact because, I mean, depending on, you know, where you read in the Buddhist tradition, there are hundreds of mind moments, or you could even say, just to be provocative, hundreds of worlds in each moment, I mean, in each second. Because things are coming and going very quickly, I'm sure you've noticed. And it can be sort of wrong view or wrong understanding to think, oh, I've got to catch every moment of the mind, every moment of experience. No. What we're transforming is the way the mind habitually misunderstands mind moments, moments of experience. So we just catch the moment that we can catch, and we practice noticing how we're relating to, to that experience. And we're re- it's, not, it's not so much about thinking about it, it's just like letting the reality of that sense contact make its impression, like that it arose and that it ceases. Like, I mean, even in a more gross sense, the sit was happening and then it ceased. It's just like that meditation we had earlier in the evening is gone. And Monday afternoon is also gone. And February is gone. It's just like gone. And this isn't just happening month by month, of course, but it's moment by moment. And so can we keep that in mind? And that's where we really see that dependent co-arising because when we're sort of this staccato, this flashing, we really see the, like, the legacy of this moment on this moment. So if there was some ignorance operating, the mind was personalizing, the mind was making this moment more than what it was, we see the effects in the next moment. Like if this was juicy... Then in the next moment, the mind wants to grasp, wants to become. In the next moment, they're suffering. So even if we're doing all the wrong things, you know, we're still learning about dependent co-arising. Like, oh yeah, sense contact. Oh yeah, wanting. Oh yeah, grasping. Oh yeah, I'm a suffering human being here. Oh yeah, there's leftover stuff. I want to do it again. I want to get it right this time. I want to become enlightened, or whatever, right? So here we are with another moment. And more dispositions, same dispositions. So then the Buddha goes, in this discourse, the Buddha goes through dependent co-arising. And he really ties the two together, the dependent co-arising, and then how one moves out of it. And you've heard this before, I'll just go through it quickly. The knowledge of the ending in the presence of the ending, has its 
prerequisite. So in the way the Buddha talked about it, there's awakening and then the kind of more ordinary mind knowing that suffering has ceased. Right? So it's, there's the moment where there's no self-centeredness, no grasping, no problem, and then the mind realizing, oh yeah, this is the mind free of any problems. So he's going to go backwards from the moment there's a mind realizing this mind is free. There are no problems here. Like what's the prerequisite? You know, and the prerequisite is the mind having put everything down. Right? So he calls that the prerequisite um, release. <laughs> you know, putting down the load, it should be said. What is the prerequisite for the knowledge of ending? Like really like recognize, hey, this mind has no weight is the prerequisite is seeing, or is the putting down, the releasing itself. And what's the prerequisite for releasing? Right? Because everything happens because of causes. So what's the, what's the cause for release? Dispassion, right? That's dispassion. One way to understand that word is like, because of the clarity, there's nothing worth grasping. There's no reason for the heart, the mind, body to get tight. Right? That's dispassion. Everything's being, you know, the mind is clear, sensitive, and not passive necessarily. Because right? a lot of people equate sitting still with dispassion, right? But could you be taking care of a child, you know, raising kids or undoing racism or you know, working for economic justice issues or whatever, could you be engaged in making the world a better place or planting a garden and be dispassionate? What would be in the way of activity and dispassion? Because remember, dispassion is understanding everything is just the activity of nature. So why would that wise understanding that everything is the activity of nature why would it need to neurotically put the brakes on any of the activity of nature? So if built in to the personality is to go plant a garden or go march for justice, where would the brake come from? What would put the brake on that? Right? So just I just want to make that point because people misunderstand this about the Buddhist teachings that dispassion is the same as non-action. No, dispassion is the absence of misunderstanding, right? It's understanding that everything is a natural process and letting it be. Yeah, Bob. That everything's a natural process, right? That nothing's worth grasping because it's, it's fine on its own. It doesn't need a personal input uh, idea of an idea of a me who's going to add something to the natural process. It doesn't require that. It gums it up. It gums it up at the place where that arose only. Right? Nature is still nature. Even being neurotic is nature. But from the point of view of thinking you're not nature, you've got a problem. Right? Nature never has a problem. The idea of not being nature is the problem. 
or the idea of being separate from nature, apart, is the problem. And then he just goes on. You know, he's kind of walking through. So release has a prerequisite, dispassion. Dispassion has a requisite, with, which is disenchantment. So that's the, you know, disenchantment matures into non-attachment, dispassion. Disenchantment is like seeing that things are coming and going. That's what we were doing during the guided sit, right? That they're ephemeral or insubstantial. They come and go. Grasping hurts. It's not really personal, right? So it's the, it's like starting to see grasping doesn't help. Does it make sense? What's the prerequisite for disenchantment? Seeing things clearly. What's the prerequisite for seeing things clearly? A stable present moment awareness, what we call samadhi. What's the prerequisite for samadhi? Pleasure, right? So you see we're going backwards. This is the transcendent origination that we've been studying the last two weeks. What is the prerequisite for pleasure? Being calm, being serene, right? The, the pleasure is that word sukha, which is actually because Pali and Sanskrit, Hindi, those languages of India are Indo-European languages. There's some similarities between some of the European languages, including English. So sukha is that, usually I like ease as the translation for sukha. Here, Ajantani Saro uses pleasure. And, uh, but it's that kind of ease that arises because we're really serene and tranquil and we feel ease. So the prerequisite for ease, pleasure, which is the prerequisite for stillness and samadhi, right, is tranquility, is calm, like resting. And then the happiness of ease arises because we're calm. It's like the wisdom in the mind realizes, I'm calm. That feels really easeful. You know, not running around with my head cut off feels really nice. Ah, right, that's the ease. The heart, like, I guess I can relax. Calm is more like an energetic relaxation. And pleasure, or sukha, the, is just a more resonant heart release, heart relaxation. And then what's the cause for that tranquility, that calm? Experiencing some rapture and joy. And what's the cause for the rapture and joy? confidence or conviction or faith. And what's the cause? This is the interesting turning point. What's the cause for faith? Suffering. Thank you. You've been reading. You've been studying or remember from last week. Yeah. So in terms of the small groups this week, I thought, you know, there's some interesting turning points that you can just reflect now as I'm walking us through it. And it might, one of these places might be really relevant to share, like places in your life where there's been some suffering but instead of just feeling beaten up and, you know, that very strong tendency, in my mind at least, oh, poor me, when things are difficult, right? That's a, probably, for most of us, most of the time, a more strongly conditioned habit to go towards some version of oh, poor me when things are difficult. But there's probably been other times when things have been difficult and the mind, the heart, a fresher look at it and sensed that 
this faith, this kind of movement of conviction like, I can do this differently. I can do this in a different way. I'm not doomed. Like, it's really turning the pain of the suffering into a teacher. Like, oh yeah, this suffering is telling me what not to do, and I I can read it. You know, it's like a map. Oh yeah, this painful part of my life here, if I look at it the right way, it's like a map, like, honey, don't do that. (laughs) You know, or do it in a different way like this, that thing. You know, don't be so stingy or, you know, let that person say what they need to say. Don't try to be in control of everything. So, and then we, we, there's a little movement. You can think of times in your life where you, you felt some inspiration, like, I'm going to do it differently. And then out of that faith is some enlivening joy, right? Like, I'm not doomed by the suffering because I can do it differently. Now, that clarity we have may be relatively strong or not so strong. So we may end back up in that place of doom or helplessness, but we might, that might inspire more clarity, more willingness to look freshly and then to be inspired. You know what? I don't think I have to keep falling in the same hole. I think there's a way to do this differently. I thought I had it last time, but clearly I didn't. But now, you know, I've gotten beat up enough I'm willing to examine some sacred cows that I initially wasn't willing to question. Right? And so we go a little deeper. Like, I mean, anybody who's been in a long-term relationship knows this. It's like, it really hurts sometimes, right? And a lot of times we just want to sweep it under the rug. But sometimes it's so painful, for whatever reason, we don't. You know, we look at the suffering more squarely and we have a little revolution in the relationship, if we're lucky. And then it like seems like it can work. And maybe even does really work for a while. You know, until we might, depending on the momentum, slide back in. But if that's another example you can give with the suffering leading to faith or conviction, confidence, and the energy, the enlivening energy of rapture and joy that comes out of faith. And it's basically like, I can trust my life. I'm not doomed to fall in that hole over and over again. So I'm, I'm ready to kind of dance with life. And part of the joy and rapture is trusting life so we're not like in this lockdown mentality of life. It's really like sensing that everything gets to dance, everything gets to move. I can dance with it. Right? That's the joy that kind of full engagement, everything's in motion, that's the joy part, the rapture joy part. So you can talk about places in your life where you've experienced that. And then if we're successful with that, like really dancing and learning and trying and being creative and seeing what works and what doesn't work, right? Not getting ossified into a view, a fixed view. Because then we stop learning. Like the way to stay in rapture and joy out of faith that life is workable, that we don't, we're not destined to be suffering beings just because life is challenging, just because things are uncertain. We're not destined to suffer. 
So if we keep dancing, dancing doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It means we're learning from success and mistakes. We're playing. We're in motion, right? Then we start to more deeply trust. So that's the tranquility. So you can think about, remember times, that kind of confidence allowed you to rest. Like the dance becomes more second nature. So you don't have to like be a, like part of the dance initially is I don't want to fall back in the hole. I want to kind of keep this positivity going, keep this engagement going, this, this learning going, because I don't want to fall back into that depressive hole or that lockdown hole or that I give up hole or whatever it might be. But after a while, it's sort of you don't need to be desperate to keep doing it right. So there's some relaxation. You kind of have some instincts or habits now that are trustworthy. And then this serenity leads to more ease, more pleasure, happiness, inner, more stable happiness, which allows the heart to really stabilize, what we call samadhi. And that's the heart that's by definition samadhi that stable present moment awareness, by definition is the mind or heart that sees things clearly because there's so much contentedness that greed temporarily ceases. And greed is a distorting, has a distorting effect on the clarity of the mind. So you might think of times, this is a more subtle state of course, more rare, but like, do you remember times when there wasn't any obvious greed, wanting something to be different than it is. Because that mind looks at the moment in an untarnished, un, no spin. It's the, it's the true no spin zone, right? Because the mind's not trying to get something from life or from the moment of experience. So that mind in that moment actually is capable of seeing clearly, we say, insight. That's what we call this tradition, insight. And then the insight leads to disenchantment, dispassion, release, and then the knowledge of release, right? So that's the finishing, the maturing of the path. So just, the, you know, any of those places where suffering, you saw the connection between suffering and confidence, and the confidence being related to joy, a lot of energy doing the dance, a willingness of, to engage life, to learn, and the settling of the heart as that learning gets more, that engagement gets more natural and the habit. And then, and then when things are just right, that, that kind of uh, joy, rapture maturing into calm and an inner pleasure, ease. And then the <coughs> mind comes into a really nice balance. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.